and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come now to your word and we thank you for it. Thank you for preserving it for us so that we might have it this morning read in our own language, a language that we understand. But Lord, we come to you now and we ask for you to give us more than earthly, physical hearing. We ask that you would grant to us by your spirit, spiritual understanding. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your word. Teach us and train us, correct us, yes, even rebuke us for righteousness' sake, that we might be whole, that we might be made more and more into the image of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. God, would you attend to the preaching of your word this morning upon the hearts of your people here? Would you help me, your servant, Would you protect me from error? And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a message, a message that prevails throughout the church today, throughout all the church around the world, a message that goes something like this. If you do all the right things, then God will be with you. If you do all the right things, then God will most surely bless you in all that you do. If you do all the right things, then you will be clothed with the favor of God. And then when you do the right things, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Why? Because the heart of this message is this. Success accompanies those who are faithful. Success accompanies those who are faithful. That's the message. And I hate that message. I hate that message. God is not a vending machine. He's not a vending machine. You cannot walk up to him and peer into the window of his will and pick your destiny as if you're choosing a candy bar or a bag of chips. Just press E11 and you get what you want. God's not a cosmic Santa Claus. He doesn't determine the abundance of your blessings based on a record of good deeds and bad ones. God is not a divine Batman. 
He doesn't just come to your help only when you manage to light up the sky with just the right symbol. You better hope it's night so he can see it. And God is certainly not a multi-level marketing scheme manager asking you to make an initial investment that will be multiplied in earthly gains when you get others to join in on the fun too. I could go on. God is none of those things. But God is the eternal. He is the sovereign creator. He is the king of the universe who is subject to no one. He alone is absolute in his authority. Perhaps the better message that we're called to give and to hear and to put to practice comes from Isaiah 64, 8. It reads this way. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Isaiah 64, 8. You see, God is the one who's forming and fashioning us. We do not form and fashion him. Indeed, we cannot form and fashion him. He is uncontainable. He is the potter. We are the clay. We are the clay. This morning, we're continuing to study God's sovereign grace in the life of Joseph. And Joseph is quite the lump of clay, isn't he? He's quite the lump of clay. We learned last week of Joseph's favored status with his father, Jacob, and the hate, the hate that such favor brought upon him by his brothers. You'll also remember that chapter 37, where we left off last week, uh, it ended with Joseph being betrayed by his brothers, barely escaping with his life, but yet sold into slavery to some passing Ishmaelites to some Midianites, traders who just so happened to be coming by. Joseph's dreams were shattered. Jacob, his father's dreams were shattered. But as we see in our text today, his story is not over. Joseph's story is not over. In fact, his story has just begun. And what about his story? Joseph is kind of the lead human actor in his story, right? But Joseph is also a victim in his own story. Think about it. He's now a slave. He's a slave, seemingly sentenced to a future as hopeful as death itself. Put yourself in Joseph's sandals for a moment. Imagine how he must have felt. Remember, he was used to hearing That thing that we say to people a lot, right? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He heard that. He was robed in that. God has a wonderful plan for you. He was once the favored son of the favored family. But now, what's come of him? He appears to be nothing more than a despised brother with a rejected future. We know from the text where Joseph was heading And this will be very important. He went down to Egypt. He went down to Egypt. And I wonder on that journey what was going through his head. 
I wonder how many times he wondered to himself, where's God now? Where is God now? Am I still blessed? Am I still highly favored by God now? As I'm in these chains being taken away. Well, Moses, who we believe to be the author of the book of Genesis, wastes no time in answering that question. He wastes no time. From the very beginning of chapter 39 all the way to the end of chapter 39, Moses makes absolutely clear that what I want you to see this morning is the first thing in our text. So if you're taking notes, mark this down. God is most certainly present with Joseph. God is present with Joseph. Look at verse 2 of chapter 39 again. The Lord was with Joseph. Look at verse 3. The Lord was with him. Again in verse 3. The Lord caused all that he did to succeed. Look at verse 5. The Lord blessed Potiphar's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had, in house and in field. Now I want you to fast forward over to verse 21. We'll read it a little bit more in a minute. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And look at the end of verse 23. Because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. I don't always get the clue. Megan went back with the kids, so she can't verify this, but it's true. I don't always get it. I have to hear it many times before it finally sinks in. Are you getting it? It's being said many times. It's very clear. The Lord is with Joseph. When something is mentioned so often, it's wise to listen. It's wise to take note. Moses wants to make sure that we don't miss the important point that just because life is hard, just because life isn't turning out the way that we hoped, doesn't mean that God has abandoned us. It doesn't mean that God is against us. And it surely doesn't mean that God's wonderful plan for our lives has been derailed. Sure, Joseph is now a slave. He's been sold to a man named Potiphar. Potiphar says he's a captain. He's a high-ranking officer in Pharaoh's guard. He's right up there near the top, next to not only the king, but a god is what people of Egypt would look to Pharaoh as. And as Joseph works for Potiphar, as Joseph works for him, he goes to work. As he works for him, take note of what happens. Blessing falls upon Potiphar's house. Blessings. God had promised to make Abraham a blessing to the nations. Here's part of it. Here's Joseph working for Potiphar, and blessing comes. And then what happens to Joseph? Even he's exalted now. He finds favor in Potiphar's sight, and he essentially becomes Potiphar's right-hand man. He's made to be overseer. It's an important role. He's overseer of all his house, over everything that he has. That's no little thing. That's a turn of fortune, huh? But he's still a slave. We'll see that in a minute. What I want you to see from this thus far is that if you belong to God, if you're a follower of Jesus and you belong to God, if you are indeed the recipient of his grace, his unmerited grace and blessing, 
then God is always with you, always. God is with you in Egypt and bondage, in a, in a setting of frustrating circumstances where you are experiencing the consequences of other people's sins against you like Joseph is. God is just as much with you there as he's with you in those sunny days in Canaan. God is always with you. When things don't seem to be according to plan, whose plan? Or when things seem to be going just the way you wrote it up to be, he's with you in both circumstances. He's always with you. There's a Dutch pastor and theologian named Abraham Kuyper. And I wanna read to you a very short quote of something that he has famously said Many of you probably have already heard it. This is what he said. He goes, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which God, who is Lord over all, does not look at and exclaim, mine. There's not a square inch in all of human domain that God doesn't look at and say, mine. 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 Such a declaration, which is founded upon scripture. Such a declaration must include our circumstances, right? Does it not also include our circumstances? Does God own your circumstances? Is God only God when you want him to be? Or is he God all the time? Is he always on his throne? Or does he move around a little bit so you can take the throne? Is God God? Yes. He's God of the circumstances. And he is God who is with you in every circumstance. Every circumstance. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you that it is a true delight to not only be able to say, the Lord is with me when there isn't a cloud in the sky. But it's also a true delight to say the Lord is with me even when we're walking through deep valleys of dark shadows. Those words must still be on our lips. The Lord is with me. It is a blessing and a comfort to know that we don't have to conjure up or search for God's blessing, find the right vending machine, say the right prayer, do the right thing. It's so comforting to know that I don't have to do something to get him there. He's already there. He is with you and he's not silent. He speaks to you by his spirit and through his word, he's with you. He's present with you wherever you go. And that's comforting. The truth of his presence is comforting, but it's not the only thing that we're taught here. For we also get to learn a little bit more about his steady hand that is upon us. That he's not just there, but he's also holding on to us. He's also forming us and fashioning us even when we face difficult trials like temptation, like temptation. Here we get to learn in this text that no matter what we face and no matter what we are able to overcome, God is still the potter and we are still the clay. And so that's the second thing I want you to see from this text this morning is that God is still at work even in temptations. God is still at work 
even there. Let's pick back up in Genesis 39. I'm going to start in verse 7. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie with her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice, And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and he fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. You see, right up until verse 7, the story actually followed the prevailing narrative of modern Christianity pretty well. Serve God faithfully. Do all the right things and God is going to be with you in a mighty way. Do all the right things, and God will bless all that you do. Do all the right things, and not only will you be blessed, but so will everyone around you also be blessed. We've seen that thus far, have we not? Joseph's doing all the right things, and he's being blessed. Others are being blessed. But Joseph's story here goes on to show us a completely different view of reality, does it not? You see, as rapidly as the ship of Joseph's fortune has risen, it just as swiftly hits a rock and is absolutely wrecked. Once again, where does Joseph find himself? At the bottom of a pit. This time he finds himself thrown in an Egyptian jail. And even worse, though, is the fact that he's not there in prison because of some moral failure on his part. Rather, it was his faithful obedience to God. It was his doing the right thing. That thing that had apparently caused his rise to power, it also causes his fall into prison. Imagine how devastating that was to him. We don't get a lot of insight to it directly, but again, put yourself in his sandals. Imagine how devastating that would be. Here we see Potiphar's wife, I'll keep this PG, not only throwing herself at him, but even demanding his promiscuity. Those two words in the Hebrew, now, that now. 
She's demanding him. That's more than seduction. It's an order. Joseph's a slave. Don't forget that. Humanly speaking, he has no say in this matter. He is expected to give absolute fidelity to this treacherous request for infidelity. That's his job. But God hasn't abandoned Joseph, so Joseph doesn't abandon him. Look at his resolve in verse 9. When he says to Potiphar's wife, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? The sin would be against God. And notice in verse 10, she keeps coming at him day by day. Day by day, she keeps coming at him. But he knows that ultimately I must please God and not woman. I thought a lot this week about Joseph and how He really could have rationalized away the situation, right? Well, I need to be subject to my earthly master. I need to go ahead and do this and get it out of the way. God will ultimately forgive me. If I just do this, it'll stop, right? He could have rationalized it like we tend to do in our sin. But he recognized this would be a sin against God. So I have one option. Run. Run. Flee from it. He did the right thing. And what was his reward for doing what was right? He gets thrown in prison. He gets thrown in prison. Now, it may not seem like it, but that's actually a mercy, if you know anything about this culture in this time. The typical punishment for this kind of transgression would have been pretty immediate execution. That would have been typical. His life would be over. So the fact that Joseph is thrown into prison... And most of us know the rest of the story, but let's live here in chapter 39, right? Uh, The fact that he's thrown into prison and not executed is actually mercy. It shows that Potiphar likely doesn't believe uh, his wife's account completely. But he has to save face, so he throws him in prison. Just so happens to be his prison, and as we'll see later, it's a good fortune as well for Joseph. But at the time, it's not. There's no consolation whatsoever. I did the right thing. And now I'm in prison for it. I did the right thing. Where's my blessing? And so I think it's at this point that another temptation, probably even greater than the sexual temptation, comes upon him. You know what temptation that is? It's the temptation to once again feel abandoned by God. A temptation that we all know too well. Oh God, he's gone again. Joseph did the right thing. He resisted the sexual temptation, but the Lord had just stood by and let this terrible, great injustice be done anyway. No one here, I don't think, could blame Joseph for wondering, where was God when I really needed him? Uh, Finally, things are turning around. Now where's God? Have you ever felt that way? Hey, have you ever been tempted in the midst of circumstances to go, wait a minute, this isn't how it's supposed to go. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and he will give you the, what? The desires of your heart. Where are my desires? I've trusted. I've done this. God, where are you? It's a great temptation. I know it because I've certainly felt it. I've certainly been there. Have you? Have you ever been tempted to think that God has abandoned you even when you're being faithful to him? 
you know, temptation like this reveals uncomfortable truths about our hearts, something I want to talk about for a moment. For if we're only doing the right thing, if we're only doing that because we think, as is so often the message today, that it will earn God's favor or it will force God to give us what we really want, then when our faithfulness to do the right thing doesn't seem to be working for us, what happens? We keep trying different ways, right? Oh, maybe I need to read that other book or try that other five-step method or maybe go to that other church or go do this other thing. I must be doing something wrong. What happens? Do you ever get resentful? Ever get bitter? Ever get angry? The truth is, is that if we're obeying God just to get something from him in return, then what's really happening is we're letting that something, that something, control us. We're letting that something control our hearts. Even worse, we might be trying to control God. We might be looking at him and saying, hey, for once, I'm the potter and you're the clay. Watch out for the lightning strike, right? I'll meddle a little bit. Perhaps if you think you tithe faithfully, God really ought to make you prosper financially. If I just give, then he's going to make me prosper. My business will prosper. Everything will be okay. Perhaps if you think that if you make and keep a commitment to sexual purity, God owes you a spouse as soon as you're ready. Or perhaps if you think that if you do your best to be a good person, God then owes you good things in life. Perhaps you think if I just pray enough, God will hear me and he'll heal me of this. But when we think like that, when we think that our works guarantee us something from God, we demonstrate that our obedience to God's law is actually not about pleasing him at all. Instead, we show that our obedience is actually about trying to use God to get what we really want. We end up looking to him as nothing more than a vending machine, a cosmic Santa Claus, a divine Batman, an idol made in our own fashion. And that brings us to the final thing I want us to consider this morning in light of this text. It's an important lesson. It's an important lesson, and here's the lesson. God's measure of success is different than ours. It's that simple. God's measure of success is different than ours. And I thought I would get a rousing hallelujah. Listen, friends, the sign of God being with you is not your success. The sign of God being with you is not your success. Not even your success in resisting temptation. The sign of God's favor and blessing upon you is not what you accomplish. It's not what you obtain. It's not even in your faithfulness to his ways. You see, the danger of this chapter and too many sermons about this chapter is that we all want to emulate Joseph's success in resisting temptation, but without having to suffer the similar consequences. We want the attaboys and girls. We want that way to go 
You too can do this. What would Joseph do? That's what we want. We want the wristbands and the t-shirts. We want to be able to say no to sin in the most trying of circumstances. And we want to be able to serve God faithfully in the harshest of conditions. We want to do that because we think that's when God will be with us. But listen, God was with Joseph. God was at work in Joseph's life because he's his God. And Joseph is his son, not because Joseph obeyed. He's with him because he is his God. If it was all about Joseph's obedience, what in the world would we make of Judah, Joseph's brother, in the chapter just before this one that rated our chapter, chapter 38? If you read that chapter, and if you haven't yet, please do. You're gonna find an account of Judah, Joseph's brother, his grievous sinfulness and his crass unfaithfulness. Here where Joseph shows self-control, Judah shows reckless abandonment. But nevertheless, God is still with Judah. God is still with Judah, so much so as we're gonna see as the story unfolds, that it's gonna be from the line of Judah that God will one day bring forth the promised seed, the Messiah. Not Joseph. It's gonna be through Judah, that wicked sinner, that despicable man, that one that's nothing like me and you, right? You see, we tend to think that God surely must have loved Joseph because he was such a hero. And God must have been really disappointed in Judah because he was such a loser. We then transfer that thought to ourselves and to our own experience. And we say things, if we don't even say it out loud, we're saying it up here and in here. God really loves us when we obey. He really loves us when we resist temptation. And God hates us or is at least disappointed in us when we sin. Well, it's true, God hates sin and God punishes sin. But if there's one lesson that is central to the story of Joseph, it is that God uses things that he hates to accomplish goals that he loves. God uses things that he hates to accomplish goals that he loves. And he loves to save sinners like Judah, sinners like Joseph, and sinners like me and you. God loves to say, brothers and sisters, if our success is conditioned upon our obedience, if our blessings in this life are in proportion to our ability to do the right things, then here's the question. What use is the cross? What use is the cross? If our success is based upon what we do, then why did Jesus die on the cross? Was Jesus not abandoned at the cross? Was Jesus not forsaken, despised, and rejected for us? Did he not come to set us free from the law of sin and death? To give us boldness to draw near to the Father who fully accepts us as we come to him 
the regenerated hearts in faith and believe in Christ, that it is him and him alone that secures our blessings, the eternal blessings of God from which no one can separate us. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, because of that, we're set free from this disease of seeing God as a mere co-pilot to our lives. Because that's what the mantra is today. God's my co-pilot. God's the captain. God is the one driving. He's the one who's in control of our destiny. When we abandon our hearts, and that's what I'm gonna call you to do, abandon your heart to rest in the hands of the faithful potter. Rest in God and his work We can truly know that he is forming and fashioning us. And yeah, it's going to hurt. And yeah, sometimes it's going to be absolutely splendid. And then at other times, it's going to be surprising and difficult. But he is making a beautiful masterpiece out of you. You're created in Christ. You are his masterpiece. When you find rest... And all that God is for you in Christ Jesus, not all that you can be for God, but all that God is for you in Christ. When you find rest there, you can stop striving. You can stop striving and you can trust in the finished work of Christ and depend upon his spirit living in your heart and helping you live for him. Look, I know that you might be in terrible circumstances right now, and I know many of you are. I know you feel discouraged, disappointed, maybe even bitter, resentful. In fact, you might even be angry. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. If you belong to Jesus Christ, the Lord is with you. He is at work. I refuse to promise you grand earthly enjoyments. But here's what I'll remind you of. You are safe and secure in the arms of Jesus. He will deliver you safely to heaven. He will deliver you. You are safe in his arms. My prayer is that each and every one of us find the grace and strength to believe that. Not just believe it, but believe it with every fiber of our being. You, God, you alone. Amen and amen. Would you grab your bulletins?